see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, there is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Okay, so we're obviously still in Mark 13, and it's heating up here. This is just a... oh. Mark 13, 14, and 15 are not my favorite things to teach because they're just so intense and it's like there's there's no lightheartedness in any of this stuff. Although sometimes I find a reason, but this is a horrible thing to study. So today we're going to have to talk about responsible hermeneutics, proper exegesis, and irresponsible eisegesis. Because we need to pay close attention to what the context is and is not here or else we will go the route of so many who blatantly ignore what Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, has been talking about since verse 2, and try to fit this into some sort of futuristic occurrence when the topic is still very much defined by the question asked by Peter, James, John, and Andrew in verse 3. This is still the Olivet Discourse. Yeshua has condemned the temple and the temple establishment and has declared the verdict of Yahweh's covenant lawsuit against it. It will fall. The disciples ask when it will happen, and what signs they can look for pertaining to this. So far, Yeshua has just flat out refused to answer the first question, <laughs> and only gives them a list of things that will look like signs, but he warns them, in fact, that they're not signs but normal events. Not fun normal events, but things that happen historically. Now, instead of what they want, which is, you know, clear indications of the when of his prediction, he sternly warns them to focus instead on what lies ahead for them personally. Namely, persecution, rejection, trials, beatings, betrayal, and death. That's pretty heavy stuff for a group of mostly teenagers to deal with. Really pretty heavy stuff for anyone to deal with when what they had hoped for was to be the inner circle of the conquering Davidic Messiah. Oh, well, hi. I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. 
And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Just this morning, I, I oh man, I recorded a broadcast on forgiveness. That's pretty heavy stuff, especially for kids. But good time to teach them because they're still willing. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list for my of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And I need to make a little note here because it probably needs to be updated. I can't remember the last time when I added my new resources to that. So, you know, I'm adding stuff new all the time, just not necessarily when I need to. So let's define a few terms here because they are very important when we want to talk about what the Bible does and does not say. The first one is hermeneutics, which is a funny word, right? It's the science of interpreting the Bible. It's that simple and that complex because we can't just make, you know, the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. We can't make Abraham a 21st century metrosexual carrying a man purse and getting manicures and drinking lattes. Oh, you know what? Compared to how he lived, he <laughs> some some days he might have been up for that. Um, the lattes anyway, right? Maybe not the man person. <laughs> well, you know, you're out in the desert enough, you need a manicure. What am I doing? Okay. Now, we can't explain him or judge his intentions according to our modernist, Western, individualist culture. He'd probably rather die than live the way we do now in a lot of ways. And yet, I have heard many a sermon where the preacher has done just that, foisting our norms onto him as though he would think of things the way we do now, and he just decided not to do them right. Um, I've actually heard Abraham referred to as henpecked when, truly, he was very much a patriarchal figure. I mean, he allowed his wife to be taken so that he wouldn't get killed, Okay twice. Now, our second word is eisegesis. That's when you look at a text and figure out what's actually there and what isn't. For example, when we look at Genesis 6-9, where it says that Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation, good exegesis notices that the words tzaddik and tamim, and uh, they find out what they meant to the original audience by either searching the scriptures for other times it shows up, or by looking at other documents written around the same time in the same language, which works for the first century scriptures, but not for the Hebrew, although you can find cognates in like Akkadian, you know, the languages that are in Ugaritic and, and that kind of stuff. Um, good exegesis also recognizes the caveat that Noah was only called those things with reference to his generation, and they were called wicked all the time from cradle to grave, every thought in their minds. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is reading an agenda or an opinion into the text that's not supported. With eisegesis, 
I can say that Noah was one of the most righteous and blameless men who ever walked the earth, and he was just a peach of the guy, okay? But not only doesn't the text support that, it actually suggests otherwise. That Noah was only a good guy compared to the people around him. And we all start out performing eisegesis on the text. No one knows how to avoid it until they're taught, and even then we do it. Now, if you would like to take a class on hermeneutics and all that good stuff without having to go to Bible college, I would like to recommend a book called Grasping God's Word by Duval and Hayes, and that's going to be in the transcript linked to where you can get the book. Um, it's what I used after coming at this hod hodgepodge for a lot of years and just picking up things as I went along. And it helps when you've got friends who have master's degrees in biblical studies and who are PhD candidates in biblical studies, you learn things from them. Now, it's very easy to follow this book and easy to use and very practical, but the work itself is very challenging. You know, if you aren't already used to doing it, and I totally recommend at least trying it. Now, this text that we're reading today about the abomination of desolation is one of those texts where people just really run it through the shredder in an attempt to rip it out of the context of the original question. What are the signs that all these things, namely the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, are about to happen? And in it, Yeshua will also answer the question that they did not ask. How will this happen? There are reasons why people do this. Because from 1,951 years in the future, the destruction and devastation um, they faced, that generation faced, doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. Well, read Josephus' Wars of the Jews sometime and see if you feel that way afterward. This was a horrific four years. The Jordan and the Dead Sea were filled with dead bodies, and they were piled up all around the temple, in the temple, in the city, and outside the walls. If you missed episode 120 about the apocalyptic language here, you will want to go back and review it because I do explain why everything is presented in such a dramatic fashion and how it lines up with the genre of apocalypticism in general, which, no, is not about any sort of great tribulation, but about times of suffering in general. Um, and the words of warning and encouragement that accompany it. Those who have sold the idea that apocalypses are entirely dealing with some sort of period at the end of time are really misleading people. That's not to say that, you know, that's not, and that's not to say they're doing it on purpose, okay? But that's probably what they were taught from popular books written by non-scholars, like from Tim LaHaye, okay? Now, that's not what apocalypses were for, and that is not why Jews composed them or read them. That is, sadly, how laymen have been taught to interpret them, because it appeals to our modern desire for violent entertainment and our desire to have knowledge of the future beyond, you know, God wins and you will too if you endure, which was the message of an apocalypse. Okay, let's get started here because this first line is bizarre, but you can only tell when you read it in Greek. Oh, okay. I want you to notice that the first word here, which is but which means that everything he's been telling them so far in the Olivet Discourse is about to change course. 
all of the don't get distracted, don't get worried, focus on your jobs, but now, but what? Okay, so let's look and see, because we have a but then statement, which is sort of like an if then statement and proper hermeneutics, you know, scriptural interpretation demand that we notice things like that. You know, conjunctions are important. The but is linking this to everything that went before and contrasting it and then giving directions. Verse 14, and this, of course, is Mark 13, so 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. First of all, Yeshua is the one talking here to the four, Peter, James, John, Andrew. But he isn't the speaker for all this. It isn't like he'd say, let the reader understand, right? <laughs> the author of Mark likes to do these narrative asides. And although we haven't seen one for a long time, this is almost certainly not something Yeshua said. This is instead direction for the reader of this gospel in the congregation, because all of these documents were meant to be read aloud and not hoarded by the few literate members of the congregation. But you know, we aren't entirely sure what they were meant to understand. There are a few theories from scholars. The first theory is that the reader was meant to understand that Yeshua was referring back to Daniel 9.27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Then uh, 1131, still Daniel. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And 121, still Daniel. And from the, the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, Daniel was an apocalypse that was written during the time of the Maccabean revolt in order to accomplish what apocalypses were written for. To inspire loyalty and endurance by providing hope for an assured victory of God and his people over oppressors. They were very, very valuable Literature, which is why they're included in scripture, you just have to know what they are and what they aren't. Um, as it describes not only the revolt, but the historical situations of the time down to small details, Yeshua might be using this commonly known account to shadow what will happen again. And so Mark might be signaling to the reader to expound upon this for the non-Jews in the congregation, since... Remember, he's writing for a Roman audience, as we can see from all the Latin loan words he uses. That's possible, all right? And yes, you might disagree with me that Daniel was written at such a late date, but I promise that disagreeing with me never damned anyone to hellfire. But if you don't like pineapple on pizza, I actually can't make any promises about your eternal, you know, fate. Just saying. All right, second option. And this is the one that I personally think is true. Um, I think the note was to keep the reader from correcting and confusing Greek in the text. 
And by the way, I didn't come up with any of these theories or anything. I just read what a lot of scholars write, you know, not being a scholar myself. Although the word abomination is neuter, neutral, the Greek word used as a pronoun clearly is masculine. That's not the case in Daniel. It translates, when you see the abomination neuter, which causes desolation standing where um, he ought not to be. And any Greek speaker is immediately going to want to instead say it, because that would be proper. We don't have this in English, but I think most other languages have really strict rules about feminine and masculine nouns and pronouns and adjectives and, you know, the verb forms that go with it. I know that I've studied, I am not fluent in any of these. Uh, I took German in college. I took French when I was in grammar school, living in Canada and again in high school. And I play around with Spanish on Rosetta Stone and I've played around with Hebrew and Greek. Um, and they all do this. They all, you have to line things up and it's not something's actually female or male. It's, it's weird to, it's weird to someone who speaks English. Let's just keep it like that. We don't see that a cat is, you know, fundamentally male or female, the word cat, not individual cats. Okay. But, you know, what's this abomination which causes desolation? No one's entirely certain about that either. But again, there are a lot of theories gleaned from the actual events that transpired. If the first option is true, then the author is telling the audience that whatever Yeshua has referred to has already happened and it's already common knowledge. If Mark was written during the late 60s, then the revolt was already underway, but Caesar's armies had not yet arrived in Jerusalem. However, and it's not really Caesar's, it's Titus's. He wasn't Caesar yet, his dad. You know what? We're not going to do this. However, the zealots and the followers of John of Giscala and Shimon Bargiora and the Idumeans slash Edomites might already be there in the city. If so, then the horrors that they are perpetrating against the citizen of citizens of Jerusalem and against the city and the temple would already be a commonly known scandal. The author of Mark would be saying that the abomination which causes desolation, you know, let the reader understand, um, and there would be nodding over something that's common knowledge. Like I said before, no one knows which of these things is the case. So let's go through some of these options for the identity of the abomination which causes the temple and the city to be desolated. Because I can't give you a for sure answer and no one can. No one's alive today anyway. The guy who wrote Mark can. Because he said, let the reader understand. So he knew. Thanks a lot, guy, <laughs> for not being more clear. Now, certainly... The disciples were aware of what almost happened in 40 of the Common Era when Caligula declared himself Jupiter incarnate and decided to place an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies. His plans became well known and the Jews departed from their fields during planting season in order to protest to the governor of Syria, who thankfully was able to put off the event long enough for Caligula to be assassinated. So it never ended up happening. As we see in Tacitus Histories uh, 5.9, under Tiberius, all was quiet. But when the Jews were ordered by Caligula to set up his statue in the temple, they preferred the alternative of war. 
the death of the emperor put an end to the disturbance. But there were things that actually happened during the siege, most from the Jews and some from the Romans that could qualify and were pretty horrific. But before we get to that, I'm going to briefly mention the research of one scholar in particular, Peter J. G. Bolt, and I read his NSBT volume on the cross from a distance, and he had an interesting take on this that I haven't seen from anyone else. And although his arguments are compelling, I'm not really sold on them, but I want to share them with you anyway, just to be more thorough. And so you can check it out for yourself if you want. He believes that the abomination which causes desolation was the crucifixion itself heralding the end of Jerusalem in the temple. So, in his thinking, verse 14 could be rewarded as, so when you see the abomination which causes desolation, a.k.a. the crucifixion of the Son of God, happening in a place where he, the Messiah, ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I personally think it's a stretch. Certainly at this point, it's not important for everyone to flee to Jerusalem and Judea when this happens. And in fact... Later, Yeshua tells them to remain until the giving of the Spirit. But he doesn't say it in Mark. In Mark, the statement is twice made that Yeshua will go ahead of them into Galilee. Could it be when Titus stood in the holy place or when the Romans planted their standard on the temple ruins and made sacrifices? No. At that point, which was in the fall of 70 CE, it was years too late for the residents to flee the city. Um, what about the zealot and bandit atrocities? To me, this seems more likely, and you have several waves of them coming in to take over the city years before the Romans. By 68 of the Common Era, every original leader of the Jewish revolt was dead at the hands of violent rivals, who would all prove to be treacherous, paranoid tyrants out for personal glory at any cost, okay? Some of them were actually criminals, literally. All of the reasonable voices were slaughtered, and those who remained were more concerned with power bases and personal glory and revenge than any sort of liberation for their people. They, uh, they systematically robbed, imprisoned, betrayed, and slaughtered anyone who opposed them, as well as the wealthy and powerful, often holding mock trials and then executing them on trumped-up charges. No one was above betrayal, neither priest, nor leader, nor common um, citizen, all right? The revolutionaries hoarded all the food to themselves within their various power bases as the people starved to death slowly. John of Gascala took up residence in the temple. Shimon bar Gira controlled the upper and some of the lower city and was headquartered in Herod's Tower of uh, Fasael. And there was also an Idumean faction, which ended up in the city after they had fled the barbarous pillaging of Simon of their lands earlier in Samaria. Uh, Samaria. Idumea. Um, between the three factions being at one another's throats, all claiming to be there to protect and defend their temple and city from invaders. Now remember that the Idumeans had been forcibly converted during the reign of John Hyrcanus a few hundred years previous to this. The dead were piling up all over the city, and with civil war brewing in Rome during the year of the four emperors, Vespasian and then Titus largely allowed them to destroy one another for a good long stretch before actively engaging. But 
by the time Titus's armies got to Jerusalem, it had been too late to leave for a very long time. In fact, everyone who could leave should have left when they saw John's armies on the way. You know, maybe they looked like saviors at the time, but they were villains seeking personal gain and success at any cost. Uh, in Luke 21, 20, Yeshua only said that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. He didn't say they had to be foreign. And there were multiple non-foreign armies all over Jerusalem. And like I said, they were robbing, they were robbing their fellow Jews. They were starving them. They, they were uh, defiling the temple. They were, they were spilling blood all through the city and in the temple. And they were holding mock trials. They were killing priests. They were, they, now I'm going to get ahead of myself because there's, <laughs> we'll be back in a few minutes. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character and Context. This week we're talking about Mark 13 and the abomination which causes desolation. Let the reader understand. We still, I don't think we've still gotten past that. Um, but this is a horrifying time in history. Horrifying. And we're talking about the zealot crimes, which I haven't even... You know what? It's too horrifying to even talk about. But, you know, if you want, if you want to read about it, you know, Josephus's Wars, you can start in volume three. If you don't want to read volume one and two, volume one and two are the lead up and it gets really horrifying after that. Not that it's good before that, but at least it's a bit more noble. Um, all right. So the, the zealot leaders, um, they, they killed the high priestly family. And set up a high priest who was described as a clown. Who didn't know the first thing about how to perform his duties. And he, he was a man named uh, Fanny. I don't know actually if that's how you pronounce his name. I, Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, his appointment was a joke. Was that it? Maybe. They filled the temple. They filled the city and temple with the blood of their fellow Jews. They robbed the temple. The factions plotted against one another and committed every sort of treachery in their dealings with one another. According to Josephus, Titus was even appalled. He's pagan. And some might, you know, chalk that up as propaganda, but Titus was a religious man who believed in needing the favor of regional gods. In Roman thinking, they won battles not just because of their military prowess, but because the gods of the lands they invaded switched sides from their, you know, formerly pathetic followers to Rome. You know, they were, they're moving on up. You know, it's like those people who have a new sports team every year. <laughs> That's how the Romans um, saw themselves as those to whom even the regional gods would recognize as favored and, and they would defect. To Rome. The gods would defect to Rome. I mean, chutzpah, that's, you know, next to chutzpah in the, in the dictionary, it should say that. 
So Titus would not destroy what he could conquer and have for his own glory. And he did not go around destroying temples that he did not have to destroy. The ancient world wasn't like that. You respected sacred space, as is proven by the fact that the Jews were allowed to execute on the spot any non-Jew who passed beyond the Soreg, Roman citizen or not. The Romans took it that seriously that even Caesar would not pass beyond it. Now, Pompey did more than a hundred years before and then regretted it and left without incident. But it wasn't until Titus felt that the Jews had defiled the temple too grievously to be salvageable that he called it subject to the rules of war, which meant it could be attacked and even raised. And even then he tried to save it, but his troops were out of control with rage at that point. You know, on, on that day that it ended up being gutted with fire. Now, after what they had witnessed for so long with the crimes against the Jewish citizenry and the offers of parley and surrender, um, only to be met with ambush and treachery and death, the troops were enraged. It was a situation out of control. Um, but it was done in fulfillment of the covenant lawsuit decree against the temple issued by Yeshua. But the sense of all this, you know, whatever the identity of the abomination which causes desolation ends up being, you know, if we even care once we can find out in the world to come, right? Can't imagine we're going to be asking questions about that. You know, all that, um, went before it, you know, like the wars and the rumors of wars and the earthquakes and famine, you know, regardless of what ended up being the abomination which causes desolation, um, that they were not to skip town and run at the first sign of trouble because there are always troubles. Yeshua is compelling them to preach and stand their ground for as long as possible, but in the end they were to only be willing to be killed for the sake of the gospel and not for the sake of the temple or the city. If you remember from the last two weeks, there were false prophets who had convinced many Jews to die for the temple, and they gladly did so. But Yeshua says they need to run at that point instead. Ah, verse 15. Sorry, my sinuses are... I, I, I mowed the lawn this morning, so you know, that always does it. Um, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Uh, first century houses were generally one or two story affairs, with a lower level for the family and an upper room for guests, or perhaps just a roof with space for people to congregate and or sleep and, um, dry flax and fish and stuff, you know. Uh, there would often be a ladder from which one could access the area to the outside, giving way, a way for men to congregate together without invading the traditional gender space of women. Um, such divisions were the norm within patriarchal cultures. Women did have the expectation of protection and privacy from non-familial males. The idea here is that the situation was so desperate at this point that they are in imminent danger and should leave everything behind, and this was correct. Zealots were not allowing any escapees, and if they saw you carrying anything, you would be accused of defection to the Romans, you would be robbed, you'd be slaughtered. And even if you didn't do those things, those could happen to you. Verse 16. 
And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Imagine being told not to take your coat in the dead of winter if you lived in Canada, okay? That's a harsher warning, but that's how these guys would have heard it. Not even being able to imagine that sort of climate. Your cloak was your protection. It was the most valuable life possession of a beggar, even. Especially a beggar. Yeshua's telling them that they can't even take their life preserver as they jump ship. Verse 17. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And um, it was a horrifying time. The zealots destroyed the food stores in the temple in order to encourage the citizens to fight for their lives, which was just stupid. A woman who's pregnant or nursing an infant is going to starge, starve much more quickly than a man, obviously. Josephus even tells what is probably an urban legend about a woman who ate her own infant instead of continuing to nurse him because she saw no future for him and she was starving to death. You know, you just hope. It was not entirely uncommon to tell such stories in order to highlight the problems of human suffering during a siege situation. Or maybe it happened. No way to know for sure. We can't rule it out. It was that desperate. Verse 18. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Um, cold isn't the worst part of winter in Judea. The biggest problem is that of the early rains. And if you have been told that the early rains are the ones in the spring, well, so was I. Um, but the early rains happen at the beginning of the agricultural civil year, you know, right after Sukkot. That's barley planting season. The latter rains happen in the spring where you do the later planting. The early rains are just crazy. And the wadis all over Israel go from dry canyons to raging deep rivers within seconds and people die if they aren't careful. The banks of the Jordan overflow and the river becomes so swollen that you can't cross. And the Romans were able to use this to their advantage to kill fleeing rebels in 68 of the Common Era as they were fleeing the destruction of Gadara, trying to, you know, they were trying to get to Jericho. Now, although Titus, and, and I believe that account is in The Wars of the Jews, um, Volume 3, um, the Ro Although Titus and his armies arrived in the winter of 69-70 of the Common Era, the siege did not begin until spring. Titus and his army spent a long time preparing and allowing the zealot factions, the Idumeans, and the followers of Simon to keep on starving and slaughtering one another. By this time, the citizens of Jerusalem had been occupied by zealots since the fall of 66, when the zealots captured the temple under the auspices of protecting holiness. But as I said before, by 68, every reasonable leader within the zealot movement was dead, and the whole thing was being run by villains bent on the domination of others. They were murderers and thieves and worse. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. 
This is where people forget the context and decide that it is describing some future tribulation. But I challenge those people to read Josephus's Jewish War, and you can start in chapter three if you want to avoid, you know, the early years, like I said. It was a greater tribulation than people imagine. Not only were there external enemies in Rome, which is the norm, okay, but the enemies uh, scattered throughout the land were so numerous that no one could even hope to chronicle them all. Galilee and Judea and Samaria and Idumea were filled with soldiers and bandits and tyrants who were willing to slaughter and rob whoever it was that was in their the way of their path to supremacy, okay? By 68 of the Common Era, there were no good guys left in the fight. Only those who would slaughter or be slaughtered. The depths of depravity, treachery, power-mongering, um, defilement, okay, were unimaginable. The groups within Jerusalem, even when the siege was ongoing, were barely able to unite even briefly before being at one another's throats again. And it was only staying in separate parts of the city entirely that kept them from being at constant war with one another and um, with the civilian population caught in the crossfire, starving to death and being subject to the paranoid delusions of the rebel factions that saw all attempts to escape as being defection in loyalty to the Romans. No one was permitted to flee in order to save their lives. And after being lied to enough times and ambushed, Titus began ordering his men to slaughter everyone they found escaping the city. Um, and some chose that death over slow starvation and brutalization at the hands of their own people. John of Giscala, um, who was in charge of the zealots, held the high ground of the temple and the Antonia fortress that joins on the northwest corner of it by a set of stairs. From that, he could rain down arrows and rocks and other sorts of missiles from above on the followers of Simon, who held most of the upper and lower cities. Simon's people were attacking John's from below as best as they could while also assaulting the Romans from the outside walls. Trapped in between were the citizens still alive and unable to escape, who were subject to frequent robbings and brutality from revolutionaries looking for food and plunder. So they didn't have enough. <clears throat> now, usually, people under siege band together for the sake of survival. This did not happen. Quite the opposite. It was an unprecedented nightmare. You know, when we look at the language of the Hebrew scriptures, we often see this idea of universal disaster and judgment applied to local events. This is an example of a Semitic idiom applied to oracles of judgment, which this definitely qualifies as. A local event is portrayed as being so devastating that it is as though the entire world is destroyed. When people aren't aware of this sort of language in the prophetic oracles throughout the Hebrew scriptures and this very ancient way of expressing such things, they have a tendency to remove the oracle from its immediate context and make it an end of day sort of thing when it's not. You see floods, earthquakes, stars falling and the sun and the moon going dark. That's symbolic language, not literal, 
of cataclysmic events that would normally kill everyone. All right, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Again, people look at this and say, oh, talking about an end of the world sort of scenario. But no, we are still in the siege of Jerusalem. That's been the topic of conversation since verse 2, and nothing has changed. Remember the function of hyperbole in Jewish writings. This sounds like an end of the world, and in a way it is. It was the end of the world as they knew it. According to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews were killed, almost all by the factions within Jerusalem. And this is where people fled to from all sides, And, you know, it was a terrible mistake to do so because what was going on inside was worse than what was going on outside. Horrifically worse. The walls of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount were practically impossible to breach. Um, You know, the siege could have taken much longer. Titus stripped every tree from the earth for over 1.2 miles in every direction for the building of siege works. That's a long way. The revolutionaries were very brave and daring and can be rightly called foolhardy. But they were able to do some terrible damage to Titus, embarrassing damage to Titus and his operations. Titus ended up losing about 10,000 men in all. But in the end, it was the infighting and the foolishness of the revolutionaries that made for the end of the city and the temple. You know, they could have lived on the food supplies in the city, all of them. For years. Um, it, it didn't have to happen, you know, this way, but those who were reasonable were dead at the hands of those who were not, and madness reigned. If the siege had continued indefinitely, the death toll would have been absolute. Everyone would have died. Um, I like 97,000 ended up being enslaved. Now, another problem here is with the no human being will be saved. And many looked at saved in the common Christian jargon of salvation. But in this case, the word means left alive. Now, for those who take this to mean that Yahweh has rejected the Jewish people wholesale, we need to look here and say, um, you know, even from this hellacious situation, Yahweh is going to preserve a remnant, and we also have to remember that most Jews lived outside the Holy Land in the first century. Four million lived uh, throughout the Roman Empire, and there were also a great many in the Parthian Empire to the east, as the majority never returned from exile and stayed in the east. Um, So when we look and see how many Jews actually rejected Yeshua in person, We're talking maybe a fraction of a fraction of 1%. The leadership was fundamentally to blame, as is evident in the Gospels. But still, Yeshua wasn't the only one prophesying the end of the temple and Jerusalem. Um, And Josephus records this. The signs were there for anyone who wanted them. But, you know, the problem with signs, you know, as we spoke about when the Pharisees and their scribes requested them, I think that was in chapter 8, is that they're open to interpretation. Everyone sees in signs exactly what they want to see and interprets them according to their own favor or fears. 
Um, just look at what people do with Revelation. Look how many books are on the market talking about the one true interpretation of the signs. How many have been right so far? None. Does that humble or stop anyone? Absolutely not, because the hunger to know is there, and it's symptomatic of larger problems. Yeshua kept refusing to give signs. We should be content with his refusal and stop seeking them. All right, verse 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. And then, we can't miss that. This is referring to the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Their world is now upside down. Jerusalem and the temple are raised, gutted with fire, left in ruins and defiled. People have been slaughtered and enslaved, save a few Roman citizens who were allowed to leave and resettle elsewhere because there were a lot of Jews who were Roman citizens. Like Germany after World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, they were a ruined people and they were desperate for dignity and saviors. Many would want revenge or relief. All would want restoration of their former lives and especially in an honor-shame culture. They'd be ripe for the pickings for wannabe Davidic figures like Simon Bar Kokhba, who promised freedom, glory, self-rule, and a rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And there would be two more revolts over the next 70 years before the Jews finally were expelled from the land entirely and really left as a people without a homeland um, to rally around and, and for. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the disciples are being told not to be distracted by this either. They still have a job to do, or, you know, more realistically, the next generation, because at this point, they're all going to be gone, pretty much. But they were able to teach this because people had to know not to be distracted uh, by the promise of an imminent return. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The word for Christ here is pseudo-Christos, and it doesn't necessarily mean someone is pretending to be Yeshua. That wouldn't have been a big draw in a society that largely denied him anyway, right? I mean, like, by that time, 20% of Jews living in the Roman Empire were, um, I'm reportedly, I, I've heard, um, believers in Yeshua. The number of Jews who believed in him were huge, 20%. Um, but 80% didn't. So, you know, um, I think this would refer to anyone claiming that they were anointed by God to restore Jewish fortunes in the Holy Land and to restore the kingdom as they had largely been imagining it. You know, destroying the Romans, um, rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, being on top of the world again, like in the time of David and Solomon and Hezekiah. Now, um, that view is too small now. Or, you know, it would be in very short order. Because, you know, obviously he still has not been crucified and resurrected. 
The kingdom is no longer a place, but a world. It will break in violently through an unjust crucifixion and lead the world to peace bit by bit, person by person. And it will be easy to forget that because there would come many people claiming to have been anointed to do just that. All of them led innocent people to their deaths in pursuit of a pipe dream of the Jews being a dominant world power again. And that isn't how the kingdom of heaven works, you know, actually quite the opposite. It works through conquering individuals as far as allegiance goes so that they will suffer and die for a kingdom of nonviolence and not in the violent pursuit of earthly sorts of dominion and glory. And um, there's the warning that these guys will also be performing signs and wonders. You know, likely some or all of them more legendary than real. Others, um, opportunistic um, interpretations of normal or abnormal sorts of events. But to people who are desperate and enduring shame and oppression... Um, well, you know, as Josephus says, people see what they want to see. People want hope and they will interpret whatever it is, however they want in order to seize on hope. But our hope is in the kingdom of heaven and not in the things that the world looks for hope in. You know, fortunately, Yeshua warned us. Um, as we saw last week with that harsh warning, Blapo translated, you know, be on guard. Not to fall into this sort of trap, but to always put our hopes only in him and do our jobs and not get distracted. So why are we always so distracted? Because we're scared. I mean, let's let's be honest. No, nothing's changed. We don't like the uncertainty of, one, not knowing when he's going to come back. Two, not knowing what's going to happen to us. And especially in the Western world where we have it really super good, we don't want to have it like they have it in other countries right now. So we think we should be exempt. And so we're, we, we're, we're terrified when, you know, other countries who have it bad, they look at Revelation and say, oh, yes, there's going to be an end to this someday. God's going to win. Anyway. See you next week.